we're preaching through or I'm preaching through Mark and we're on chapter 11 so it's Mark chapter 11 and we're going to go from verse 12 picking up from last week up to verse 26 And on the morrow when they were come from Bethany, he, that's Jesus, was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if happily, if perhaps he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter for ever. And his disciples heard it. And they come to Jerusalem. And Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But ye have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. And when even was come, he went out of the city, and in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold the fig tree which thou cursedst is withered away. And Jesus answering saith unto them, have faith in God, for verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. And when ye stand praying, Forgive, if you have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. So we're going to look today at this account from a certain angle. Based on based on what Jesus said there to Peter. So it, this is all about prayer, just some notes about prayer and some other issues as well. So we're picking up the story on day two of this Jerusalem visit. So you'll remember the the, the party that's, you know, Jesus and his disciples, they'd, they'd entered Jerusalem, Jesus was on a donkey. And so we said it was sort of, it was a triumphant entry in one sense, but it was also a very sombre time for Jesus. Remember, he had less than a week. He had about a week to live, that's all. And he knew it. And his exit from this world would be quite terrible. And so, believe it or not, Jesus was, well, part of him was dreading that terrible end. So let's try and summarise today's account then what we've just read so they've spent the night in their accommodation in Bethany and Jesus and the disciples they're about to re-enter Jerusalem and they come across this 
we see this strange bit of theatre. It's the only way I can describe it. Jesus makes his way over to a fig tree and he finds no fruit on it and he pronounces a sentence on the tree. It would, he said, never produce fruit again. So then they enter Jerusalem and they make their way over to the temple. And there we see a side of Jesus we haven't seen so far. He takes issue with the with the commerce taking place in the temple and starts kicking over tables and shouting. And it would look to most onlookers like just a case of antisocial behaviour. But Jesus was conducting a lesson. It was an unusual approach, to be sure. I mean, if you imagine me shouting from the pulpit and then starting to kick tables over and get people by the scruff of the neck and evict them from the church, you'd be shocked. You probably wouldn't come back. <laughs> Bible students have come up with all sorts of ideas about what was happening here. And some some have suggested some have suggested that when Jesus went into the temple, he brought the entire proceedings of the whole temple to, to a halt. All the the trade, the, the sacrifice, the worship. But that's unlikely. The, the, you see, the temple court was huge. This is the place the Gentiles were allowed in as well. It was huge. To, to give you some idea, it was about the size of 20 football pitches it had the capacity to comfortably take about 70,000 people in it at any one time so it's more likely that his protest was noticed by quite a few people especially the ones he threw out the front door but it wasn't serious enough serious enough to uh, you know bring over the temple uh, police or the temple guard if you like the reaction from the religious leaders is interesting, although it's not its not at all surprising. Jesus had been attracting disciples. And remember, every one that follows Jesus is one less to follow them. So they risked losing their status. And it's for this reason they want Jesus damaged in some way. They intend either to bring disgrace on his name or have him killed. Either will do. Now my message today is in two parts, and one is uh, positive and one is negative. So first, we, first, firstly we're going to look at what this withered fig tree says about prayer. And then secondly, we're going to look at how the tree speaks of a coming destruction. So firstly then, the fig tree as regards prayer. The first thing we'll notice uh, in this account is the importance of prayer. I imagine, I imagine most people reading this passage will will conclude the traders in the temple were involved in some kind of deception. I think that's what what I have, have believed mostly, uh, like overcharging for animals or you know altering the exchange rate. But I don't think that's the case. Let, let's let's take a step back and think about what the, what they were doing here. People were coming to the temple at various seasons to make sacrifices to God and to pray. So those making sacrifices would buy an animal and then they'd take it and hand it over 
uh, to the priests uh, who, who would who would sacrifice that animal as as an atonement to to cover their sins and the sins of their family. But the, the if you think about it, the, this was imperial Rome uh, territory, so th the the currency in use uh, was that of imperial Rome, and because because like the coins carried the image of the emperor or other pagan symbolism it was forbidden to use that money within the grounds of the temple so what you do is you take you take your roman money and you would take it to the the jewish money exchanges and they'd give you the equivalent amount of money in an acceptable currency as far as i've been able to find out it's believed that these stalls were originally set up outside the city walls on the hill the hill that was the Mount of Olives so I think I think it's a, in one way it's it's quite a reasonable move if they if they said look why are we why are we standing out here first of all people are buying off us and then going into the temple anyway why not save them the, the journey driving the animals all the way down the hill why not just let them buy it at, 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 the, at the point where they need it so the, let, let's not misunderstand they were they were providing a service an, an important service so what was Jesus's objection then well what what Jesus says is partly a um, a quote from the book of Isaiah and it's Isaiah 56 it says even them will I bring to my holy mountain and will make them joyful in my house of prayer their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted on mine altar for mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all people for all nations that means So the most obvious interpretation of what was going on is Jesus is saying this is a place of prayer but you've turned it into a marketplace and that's and that's morally wrong maybe that's the correct understanding but I suspect that's not the case because part of Jesus's brief and angry lecture was was a quote from another prophet Jeremiah he, he, he said is this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes behold even I have seen it saith the Lord now what's interesting here is that when Jeremiah uses this term den of robbers it had nothing to do with inflated prices or dodgy exchange rates the leaders in Jerusalem who Jeremiah was denouncing were guilty of something quite different. They were oppressing people, even widows and orphans. Uh, innocent people were being killed. False gods were being worshipped all over the place. So why does then Jeremiah call them robbers? Well, we can say that their robbery was of two kinds. They were robbing people of justice. And they were robbing God of worship and so we can we can map that over from Jeremiah to the passage we're in today 
I said a minute ago, the outer court was the only place the Gentiles were allowed in, uh, but the Jews were cluttering it up with the market stalls. And, and even if the Gentiles could still go about their business with all this going on, it still counts as a hindrance. So my point is, it, it wasn't so much that it was inappropriate for people to conduct commerce in the court. I don't think that was it. I think it was more that these traders were just taking over the place. It was getting ridiculous. So we can see why Jesus quoted from Jeremiah. He enters the temple and sees that God is robbed of the worship of the nations, of the Gentiles, and the nations were being robbed of their place in the house of prayer. So by clearing out all these traders, Jesus does two things for the Gentiles. Now firstly, his actions picture the opening of the court to the Gentiles in a literal sense. Sort of, if you like, saying, get out of the way, and then encourage them to come in. Now I seriously doubt all these traders will have permanently abandoned trade in the temple just because this one man has an angry outburst one day but many will see his point they were to be making way for the gentiles not getting in their way but secondly is where jesus's words and actions foreshadow a time coming very soon when the gentiles will be admitted to the kingdom of god in a way never before possible it's a time when gentiles all over the world they'll be able to to enter the courts of God right where they are through prayer but you see friends how important prayer is to Jesus he's the he's the one who not only uh, prays constantly himself and sets an example he, he, he really urges us to do the same so this is Jesus's encouragement for you and me today that we should pray without ceasing and, and also in a spirit of real humility, we should encourage our uh, brothers and sisters in Christ to likewise go to God often and in earnest. Well, the next thing about prayer is the, the power of prayer. I, de I decided on the length of today's passage for good reason. It has to be cut off somewhere, and it's sometimes difficult to make that decision. But let's imagine for a minute you, you read what we read together earlier. If you read most of that, but not all of it, you, you, you'd you read about the, the fig tree being cursed. Then all the disturbance in the temple caused by Jesus. And then you'd read about the fig tree again, shriveling up. So the way Mark sandwiches the temple-ish incident between uh, the two mentions of the fig tree will likely lead you to, to, to the conclusion that the purpose of Jesus doing that to the tree was to picture something like, you know, the, the Jewish religion dying or something. However, I decided to include what happened next. And it would be difficult to separate it because you see here, Peter brings up the, the matter of the withered tree he brings it to Jesus's attention so at that point at that exact point you would bet all your money on Jesus saying something like 
Ah, the withered tree. So, do you see now how I did that to picture the judgment on Jerusalem? Or something like that. That's what we'd expect, surely. But Jesus says nothing of the sort. Instead, he starts talking about faith and prayer. It, it seems so out of place and it's puzzled many Bible students down the centuries. And some have concluded the fig tree was primarily about judgment on Israel and only secondarily to do with prayer. It sort of makes sense, but we can't escape what Jesus said. And again, what he said was in direct answer to Peter's mention of the withered fig tree. So I believe we must conclude the purpose of Jesus' uh, cursing of the fig tree was at least as much about prayer as anything else. Jesus then wants the disciples to know that the very power that he used to perform his miracle with the fig tree was available to them. Have faith in God, he says. I've always been astounded, you know, by these promises Jesus makes to his followers about prayer. They're so big. It's it's a real blessing to be part of God's uh, plan, especially to know that our prayers are used by God to fulfil his purposes. It's, it's an honour. And so he's he's done so much throughout time. He's, he's even destroyed tyrants. He's brought deliverance for God's people in response to their prayers and so on. But he makes these big promises. And the promise here is just as immense. Now, I probably don't need to say this, but we're not to understand what Jesus said literally, are we? He doesn't want us to pray that Mount Everest will be uprooted and thrown in the Pacific Ocean. He's using hyperbole. That is, he's come up with an extreme example of something to get his point across. The idea of uh, mountains being moved, very, a very odd picture, but it wasn't new. We, we, see, we see it all the way back in Job. In fact, we see... Job says, He putteth forth his hand upon the rock. He overturneth the mountain by the roots. Interesting. So Job's speaking like Jesus. Hyperbole. The idea of God just tipping mountains over gives us a small insight into his incredible uh, power. And we learn from these things, this incredible reality. This power can be requested by us. God is not in the business of tearing up his own landscape and, and making a mess through our prayers. But he does bring about monumental changes to our world because of our petitions. Think about how he wreaked havoc on Egypt, one of the most powerful nations in the world. All as a result of prayer from his people. Or consider how the most savage persecution uh, of believers in Imperial Rome was ended overnight uh, when um, there was a, a change of heart, uh, uh, some religious experience uh, by um, the Emperor Constantine. And so overnight, again through the earnest prayers of God's people, the, the whole world changed. Persecution was outlawed like that. Nothing's too hard for God, friends. 
he can as easily shatter empires in response to your prayers as make the smallest change in your private circumstances at home. I'd like us to look for a second at this interesting verse in the book of Revelation. Uh, It's in chapter 8. Revelation 8 and verse 8, it says, And the second angel sounded, and as it were, a great mountain, burning with fire, was cast into the sea, and the third part of the sea became blood. Yeah, it's all it's all symbolic. So this mountain going into the sea, it, it's all about judgment. Mountains can represent rulers or empires. So it's about the overthrow of of a, a system, perhaps, or a, a, a kingdom. So, is this what Jesus is? encouraging the disciples to do to pray for the downfall of people and governments well you'll know that on the contrary we're asked to pray for uh, the well-being of our rulers and our governments but still i think it's fair to say that we are encouraged to pray in positive and negative ways we're to pray constructively so say we might pray for the salvation of someone we love we might pray for someone to be healed soon and so on but we're also to pray in a destructive way for example we could pray for confusion in the enemy's camp uh, if some anti-christian law was proposed by the government we could pray for its failure It is possible Jesus was using this example of the the, the, the mountain in, in the sea just to encourage people to pray in a, in a general way. But it's also possible he was including in that a deliberate hint about his own faith. Uh, a faith that had 100% confidence in the destruction of Jerusalem. And interestingly, the temple sat on a mountain making it even more likely he was making a subtle reference to the overthrow of Jerusalem and by extension Israel uh, as we know it. Well here's my third point it is about the conditions conditions attached to prayer. So these extravagant promises telling his disciples telling us that whatever they ask of their heavenly father they'll get it they're not unconditional i can't i can't imagine the chaos that would be caused if every prayer of every christian were answered by god every selfish prayer every prayer not in line with god's revealed will we'd be in a mess people would be praying for their their old mothers to 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 stay alive you know, forever she'll be like four hundred years old, and they'll be praying, "Lord, spare her life." We're being a mess. There are conditions that need to be met for God to give us our requests. So the first one, as you can see in verse twenty-four, is faith. So when we ask God for something, we need to genuinely believe, not only that God is able to grant requests, but that He will. You must have some faith to pray at all. I mean, no one, uh, no one will, no one will go and pray to God, will they, if they don't believe there is a God? And when you think about it, praying would be the most t- 
time wasting religious activity if there was no God. And yet prayer is central to the life of a Christian. And that's why we need the, the faith that there is a God, that he's our God, that he listens to our prayers, that he is listening to our prayers right now. I mean, and we need the confidence that he will give us what we ask for. This is how uh, James uh, expresses it in James, uh, the first chapter of James. But let him, the prayer, ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Do you see how pointless it is to pray with only a faint belief that God will do what you ask? Let me be clear here. Using the previous example, if you if you did pray against the introduction of some law that was bad for the church, when you prayed, you should be the next day going and turning on the, the TV, fully expecting to see a BBC reporter describing the the surprise collapse of this new bill going through Parliament. That's the type of faith we need. When Elijah prayed for rain, the, the sky was absolutely clear. Clear blue sky. He prayed for rain and then he got up and he went and he looked on the horizon to see if there was any rain clouds. No. So he went back to prayer and he, he prayed again and off he went. He, he stood up on the hill again and had another look. And he again fully expected to see a cloud and was surprised that there wasn't one. And so God made him pray a lot more, uh, quite a few times, before giving him his request. And on that seventh time, he looks out and on the horizon, he sees this black, thunderous cloud heading their way. Elijah had faith. He believed God was going to change the very weather patterns of the region in that day just in response to his earnest prayer in verses uh, 25 and 26 we see another condition for prayer and this one this time is about forgiveness the principle is clear here with a harsh spirit towards other people God will not listen to you He's forgiven you if you're a believer and he expects you to forgive others. If you choose not to forgive others, go on, carry on praying if you want, but you may as well be talking to the wall. And worse than that, if you cannot, if you cannot forgive uh, others, then you cannot get forgiveness of God. We were talking the other day, perhaps in the Bible study, about this story in Matthew's Gospel a man had been forgiven of some debt but he was then not at all merciful to someone who owed him money so let, let's have a little look at those verses it's from uh, Matthew's Gospel the 18th uh, chapter then his Lord after that he had called him said unto him oh thou wicked servant I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me shouldest, thou, shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant even as I had pity on thee. And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother, the trespassers. 
it's severe it's severe but it looks to me like the entire eternal future of an unforgiving person is at stake here to put it bluntly if you're an unforgiving type of christian you're probably not a christian now we, we've mentioned two we've mentioned two uh, conditions mentioned two conditions that need to be satisfied if we're to expect god to grant us what we want in prayer these are the ones jesus chose to, to mention here but they're not the only ones so for example one thing he didn't mention prayers need to be in line with god's will um it, it's a it's a difficult area this but th th there's not a christian who's ever lived who hasn't uh, hasn't asked this question how can i know god's will and it's a tough issue however god has graciously indicated to us in his word the bible several things we can ask for that are definitely in line with his will i'll, I'll give you just three examples things you can um, have no doubt about that god uh, is happy for you to pray for so if you pray for someone to get well you don't know it's god's will for them to get well sorry but that's just the reality you don't know you pray for them you pray for them uh, with with a hope that god might soon heal them but you don't know what god's will is there but here's three examples where we do know god's will the first example is in salvation the word of god is full of encouragements for sinners to go to god for salvation and this is what evangelism is we we, we take the promises of God and we broadcast it to, to the world. And so th th those people who've become aware of their sinfulness and who are persuaded there are severe consequences to be faced uh, because of it, th th they're urged by evangelists to, to pray to God for deliverance. So we, we can tell the sinner to go to God uh, in prayer with absolute confidence that he won't reject any who go to him sincerely here's a second example the holy spirit for the one who's been to god in repentance and placed their their faith in jesus christ the word of god assures them that if they ask for the spirit god will certainly do it and i, I can tell you that's that's i can tell you that's true because i've i've tr tested this out if you like and it's been answered and so what we're saying is that at times when a believer just needs that extra influence of the Holy Spirit in their lives, they can pray and they'll get it. Listen to what it says here in Luke chapter 11. If ye then being evil, he's talking to me here, if ye then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them? Let's ask him. Here's one more thing. One more example is wisdom. A guy years ago once described to me, he said, wisdom is taking the things you've learned in life and applying them to your present situation. The application of knowledge, he says. So for the believer, they've, they've spent their lives, you know, building up this knowledge about, about people you know how people work and it'd be useful if it'd be useful for us to be able to 
to recall all these things we know about we've learned about people and, and apply them so that we can interact uh, as best we can with, with people now and more importantly the Christian has learned things about God as they've gone along and so of course we the Christian wants to apply those to his everyday life so they need wisdom and there's another promise from the scriptures from James this time uh, the first uh, chapter if any of you lack wisdom let them ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not and it shall be given to him it's pretty clear isn't it so it shall be given for you who are believers let me briefly offer some guidance about prayer <clears throat> very often uh, Christians don't receive from God what they ask for and not wanting to bring dishonor onto God they start to make excuses they might say oh well God sometimes says no and, and that may be true sometimes okay but it could be the believer has a fault in their prayer life after all, Jesus has said you will get what you ask for if you're praying properly. So instead of apologising on God's behalf, you know, embarrassed because he's not the prayer answering God you thought he was, we should be more willing to say, no, I didn't get that thing I've been praying for off God, no. Uh, so I'm going to go home and examine myself to see what I'm doing wrong. That should be the attitude. Another point uh, about prayer is it's preferable you pray to the father now you may you may say well god's a trinity so we can pray to the holy spirit if we want or we can pray to jesus or we can pray to the father but i'm only suggesting that we model our prayer life on the examples in scripture and then uh, the, the the model is 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 i mean we read john 16 it, it, it says hitherto have you asked nothing in my name ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full and so the pattern really is we're praying to the father in the name of the son and in the power of the holy spirit and keep praying brethren keep at it because fervent prayer is an indicator of spiritual life while lack of prayer is a sign of spiritual decline i just want to briefly now just mention one other thing about the fig tree it's about how the fig tree relates to the issue of uh, destruction it's always fascinated me how humans can have feelings towards inanimate objects as if they were alive <laughs> a british sitcom which i won't mention but some of you will know a british sitcom from the 1970s saw a man furious at his own car which wouldn't start so he threatened the car first and then he goes and gets a branch off a tree and starts to whack this car uh, punishing it <laughs> and uh, but I've seen it in my own family when my children were smaller uh, they'd they'd see balloons float off into the sky and they'd be sad because the balloon was going to be up in the sky by itself I think this I think they're still like that so I suspect then people will some people will feel sorry for this fig tree you know it's sitting there it's growing away it's each year it's producing leaves and presumably producing figs for passing travelers and it sounds like jesus was angry at the tree for having no figs on it even though fruit wasn't due to emerge on the tree for another six months bertrand russell the famous uh, philosopher historian and other things he 
in, in, a, in a book he, he wrote, an anti-Christian book, he accused Jesus of vindictive fury because he was unkind to the tree. I mean, it's, it's just a tree. <laughs> These things are said by people who don't want to believe and they're looking for reasons not to. Uh, they, they misunderstand scripture and they're not interested even in learning how better to approach the scriptures. I mean, there's nothing in our account to say Jesus was even angry, just to start with. The business of the fig tree was an act of theatre by Jesus. The whole thing was staged by him to teach something both about prayer and nothing less than the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. The very earliest commentary uh, on Mark's gospel, the 4th century, the 5th century, uh, explained it in a, in a similar way. It's a parable being acted out by Jesus. And this, this is the reason why this is the reason why uh, some Bible scholars say that we shouldn't call this the cleansing of the temple. Jesus cleansed the temple. It can give people the wrong impression that Jesus came to the temple to, you know, reform it, get it back to normal. But no, Jesus didn't go there to reform the temple, but to abolish it forever. The green leaves on a fig tree were, were almost like a promise of fruitfulness and it's the same with the temple. There was lots of activity there. There was millions of animals being sacrificed. Prayers were going up without ceasing and yeah, for all this religious activity there was spiritual deadness. And by quoting from Isaiah, um, from Jeremiah, sorry, uh, Jesus is hinting, I think, that he's going to do to this temple what God did to the old temple. Just wreck it. This withered fig tree was hugely symbolic of the end of this dead religion of Judaism, the end of the temple, the end of Israel as a nation, as a chosen people of God. It was the end of it. It was the start of a brand new era in God's purpose. The very notion of the temple was being redefined. It was no longer a structure made with bricks, but it was a body of people all around the world. Instead of God's relationship just being with Jewish people, he would now draw into his family people from all nations and tongues. And that frenetic slaughter of millions of animals was to be ended by one sacrifice, that of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. As unpleasant as all that sacrificial business was, each animal and bird played a role in God's purposes by becoming a symbol of one ultimate sacrifice to end them all. The Jews would succeed in their plots. They wanted Jesus dead and they got it. And here's the great irony. In getting rid of Jesus once and for all, they helped to usher in a new era where Gentiles would have access to God in prayer in a way they couldn't imagine. The Gentiles were not... Be wouldn't be concerned about the the destruction of the old temple because they would become the new temple of God itself. God says, you people are the temple of God, he says. 
If they ever do, if some lunatics ever do rebuild a temple in Jerusalem, it is not of God. And any sacrifices made there will be an abomination and an undermining of Calvary. So there we have it, the fig tree and, and the, the temple. The account is full of complexities and I I, I, I could spend months and months uh, putting this together more coherently, you know, but my time is limited. But at least today, I, I hope I've been able to extract some fundamental principles for you. And so we are now the temple of God. God lives in us in a special way. And he encourages us. He encourages us not to be barren like that old fig tree or the unfruitful nation of Israel, but to understand the centrality of prayer in the Christian life and act accordingly by being people who are utterly dedicated to prayer. Well, Grace be to you all and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. Thank you folks for tuning in you believers. I hope you have a blessed day. Any unbelievers who've tuned in May God have mercy on you and please do get in touch if you have any questions. It would be our privilege to point you to Jesus Christ. Bye for now.